Welcome to the third session in an eight-part introduction to Indigenous Relations in BC. In this session, I'll talk about consultation and court decisions. As I mentioned in an earlier session, Section 35 of the Constitution Act recognized and affirmed the Aboriginal and treaty rights of Canada's Aboriginal people. What it didn't do was define Aboriginal rights. Generally, Aboriginal rights are thought of as pertaining to activities on the land, like fishing and hunting, but they've been less formally interpreted to include a broader package of economic, political, cultural, and social rights. Fundamentally, it's been argued that they're the right to practice an Aboriginal people's traditional culture. The formal debate over the meaning of Aboriginal rights has been carried out in the courts, and I count at least 33 important Canadian decisions on the subject, and I'll describe one BC example and use it to introduce the concept of consultation. Starting in 1984 and ending with the Supreme Court of Canada decision in 1990, the Musqueam people, as represented by Ronald Edward Sparrow, defended against government restriction of their Aboriginal right to fish in the Fraser River. I'm going to oversimplify again with apologies. Mr. Sparrow was fishing with larger nets than permitted under the law. He responded to orders to cut back his nets by saying that requiring him to do so would deny his Aboriginal right to fish. And after six years of litigation, the Supreme Court of Canada agreed. That court decision resulted in the Sparrow Test, which sets out whether a right exists and if a government can justify infringing on it. Specifically, a government activity would be considered to infringe on a right if it imposed undue hardship, was considered by the court to be unreasonable, and prevented the right holder from exercising that right. Now, government infringement could be justified if there was a valid legislative objective, like conservation of salmon stocks. If infringement was minimized, if fair compensation was provided, and Aboriginal groups were consulted, or at the least informed. This set the legal groundwork for further assertions of Aboriginal rights, and in my opinion, effectively triggered a broader debate on the definition of consultation. As a result of that court decision, the federal and provincial governments were obliged to apply the Sparrow Test when making any natural resource decisions. The first question in any decision process was, is there an existing Aboriginal right to do something? And the second, could the government legally infringe on it? And as you might expect, governments were reluctant to acknowledge the existence of Aboriginal rights, and they faced court challenges by First Nations asserting a variety of them. Gradually, in response, the government acknowledged the direction it received from the courts and established increasingly comprehensive consultation guidelines. Today, government decision makers are obliged to consult with First Nations when a decision they're considering may have an impact on Aboriginal rights or title. That means there are very few decisions that don't require some level of consultation. In the court's view, 
The greater the potential impact, the greater the depth of consultation required. The province interprets that to mean that, for example, minor administrative decisions only require notification of potentially affected First Nations. It's generally agreed that any decision that would involve resources of traditional value to First Nations, or associated with known Aboriginal rights, would require considerable consultation. So, a large proposed project like a new mine would require deep and extended consultation. But that doesn't define consultation. Here's my best simplification. And before I recite another list, let me be clear. This foreshadows the conversation we're going to have on the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And it's not just about individual decisions in a government program. It's what's expected when proposing procedural, policy, or legislative change that might affect Indigenous people. Okay, government's consultation obligations include starting consultation at the earliest opportunity. I can't stress this enough. This means day one, not day five, ten, or twenty. Identifying all the First Nations communities that may be affected by a proposal and the appropriate contact people and communication methods. Providing First Nations with complete information about the decision facing government. And typically, that means describing an application or a proposal in a clear, thorough, and understandable way. Providing detailed information about what will happen if the proposal is approved. Listening carefully to the First Nations' response to that information and providing any further information requested. Where necessary, supporting the capacity of First Nations to effectively review the information. Now, that's usually money to pay for staff time and travel or external experts. Discussing with the First Nations ways to mitigate or compensate for potential impacts on the Aboriginal interests that have been identified. Documenting all these factors and taking them into account when making a final decision, especially the conditions that would apply if an application or proposal is approved and how those conditions address the concerns raised. And finally, sharing information about the decision process itself in a timely and open way. That's often not easy in government when the discussions in cabinet are protected as cabinet confidences. It's important to understand that this means that First Nations communities are barraged with hundreds of consultation requests every month from many government ministries and agencies. The time and cost required to respond to them often overwhelms First Nations organizational resources. While government is working to negotiate agreements that would streamline those consultation processes, they take time and resources to complete, and First Nations communities are understandably wary about making it easier for government to potentially infringe on Aboriginal rights. There's good information about the consultation processes in place on the website for the Ministry of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. 
One of their useful bits of advice is recommending that applicants keep a communications log of all interactions with First Nations during the consultation process, which calls for a sidetrack. In the old days, when I was working in various Crown land programs, it was painfully clear that ministries were going through a consultation checklist that would read something like, send letter to Indian bands explaining the proposal. If you hear nothing, send another letter. If you still hear nothing, call the indigenous person responsible for coordinating referral responses. And so on, until all the boxes were ticked. And you could call consultation done. First Nations governments very quickly realized that, as human nature would have it, and to meet government-imposed timeframes, ministries were doing the minimum possible. Meetings would often start with First Nations leaders saying, To be clear, this is not consultation. You can't leave this meeting and say that you've consulted with us. Honestly, though, I'd argue that for a very long time, there wasn't a practical definition of meaningful consultation. I think that's changed. One of the great challenges in consultation is that there are around 200 Indian bands in BC, and their traditional territories overlap. Most places in BC are within several traditional territories. For example, if you're trying to figure out who to consult with in the Fraser Valley, good luck. But one place you can turn to for help in sorting that out is Front Counter BC, and it's Natural Resources Online Portal. While their role is to help natural resource applicants, they routinely provide advice to other agencies, companies, and individuals on who to consult with in the First Nations world. Their offices are distributed pretty well around the province in the usual urban centers. And, once again, the Ministry of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation website has material that's useful for everyone working with First Nations. Okay, that calls for a more detailed discussion about Aboriginal title and rights and the concept of veto. And I'll talk about that in the next session. I'm still Peter Walters, and I thank you for listening. Thank you.